0: And we're going to go through, hey, Jude. Uh, Jude is powerful. It's so similar to 2 Peter. But you know where we're going after Jude? We're going to go to Colossal Colossians. That's where we're going. And I'm going to teach you the Word of God. You know why we need to know the Word of God? Because the more you know, the less deceived you are apt to be, the stronger you will be, the less spiritually anemic you will be. As a matter of fact, you will be mighty in your spirit. Because faith comes from hearing God's Word. And if every scripture, every verse is given by Him, we ought to look at them. We ought to study them. We ought to soak them in. But tonight we're going to look at close encounters of the demonic kind. Let's pray together, can we? Father, we just thank You right now for the Word of God and how it changes us. And how it strengthens our inner man. Lord, open our spirits to the Word. Let us be people of the Word, for people of the Word are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds and mighty to shine the light. Lord, speak to us tonight. Can you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, tonight, renew my mind. Change me tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you. And let's look at Jude tonight. Now, last time, as we studied, now, it only has one chapter, so I don't put the chapter up there because it's just one So you just put the verses. Last time as we studied Jude 3 through 5, Jude exhorts the church to earnestly fight for the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, the faith being more than John 3.16, that's the gospel. But he's also talking about every teaching, all the teaching, all the content of the Bible you're holding in your hand. The faith. The faith that is centered on Jesus Christ as Savior The faith that deals with the efficacy of the blood, with the cross, with heaven, with hell, with the Holy Spirit, with literal truth, with God's Word being truth, all the principles for living all across the spectrum of life, the faith once delivered to the saints. We are to fight for it. Now, you know what I wish we had? I wish we had a church with more of a spine, not our church. I'm talking about the church in the West. I'm afraid political correctness has taken away our spine. We're, we're too concerned about being nice. Can I tell you something you may not agree with, but I'm going to tell you anyway. God didn't call you to be nice. Well, we ought to be nice because that's love. No, it's not love. If that's love, then Jesus wasn't nice. As you look at Jesus, he was not often nice. He was very truthful and he was full of zeal. But he was not nice. Political correctness has got us so trained to be nice. We don't have a spine. You know what people are looking for? Fire. Conviction. Strength. Uh, boldness. Fearlessness. So can I tell you, I'm not going to be a nice pastor. I'm not going to be a nice preacher. I'm going to be a truthful loving pastor free but sometimes love sometimes love will take you to the shed love takes me to the shed all the time when i read the word of god uh, you know i'll hit a verse and go oh and and love god says you know you need to see this or realize or or repent of this or do that and that's what love does jesus was not nice jesus was love there's a big difference now if you get rid of that nice thing and decide you're going to be truthful and loving and bold, then you become a fighter for the faith. That's why I want to go all over the country and all over the world with our, the Word of God. Because I want to fight for the faith that is under attack. In a, in a very vicious way now. In a way that I've never seen in all my years of preaching. The West is under attack, folks. And if we're going to do anything about it, we're going to have to get, out, get rid of the nice and get bold. Are y'all hearing me tonight? Or are you just being nice? (laughs) All right. And we saw that Jude uses three illustrations to highlight our battle with apostasy and heretical teaching because that's what Jude's dealing with. Remember? Gnosticism. God didn't create material things, all material things are evil. Since he didn't create material things, then he surely did not send his son to come in the flesh because flesh is evil. Part just a part of what Gnosticism taught. It was heretical, false teaching, and it was it's what Colossians that we're going to look at next was all about attacking Gnosticism, apostasy, heresy, and telling us who Jesus really is. Now, he deals with this false teaching and the fate of false teachers um, by. Three illustrations dealing with three ages. First, the Pilgrim Age, and that's the Israelites in the wilderness. He's going to take an illustration from there. We saw that last time, the Pilgrim Age, when they were going across the wilderness. Now, then the Primeval Age. We're looking at that one tonight, the time of Noah, the Primeval Age. And then third, we're looking at this one tonight as well, the Patriarchal Age, which was the decadence of Sodom and Gomorrah he's going to draw illustrations. Why is he doing this? He's saying this, if God didn't spare the angels and God didn't spare His own people in the wilderness and God did not spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, God will not spare false teachers and heresy and apostasy today. That's what he's saying. So he's using these illustrations. Now, In the first illustration of the Pilgrim Age, we saw Jesus' parable. This is last week. We saw Jesus' parable of the tares and the wheat played out in vivid technicolor. Two kinds of people left Egypt under Moses. A lot of people don't realize this. Those that were soundly saved and those that were supposedly saved, but they weren't. Same today. In any church, there are people soundly saved and there are people who think they're saved or supposedly saved but aren't Billy Graham said the greatest harvest field in the world is the church the soundly saved have been saved the way we got saved they were saved by the blood of the slain lambs as God directed and the blood was applied above the door the sides of the door and in a basin in front of the door on the porch more or less and so there was blood and when the death angel Went over them, he passed by or passed over them because he saw the blood. And that was only a type and a shadow of God pointing down the tunnel of time when the only begotten Son of God would spill his blood. And when we receive Him, the blood covers us. Therefore, when judgment comes one day, the judgment passes over us because God sees the blood. We're not going to be saved by a personality. We're not going to be saved by pedigree. We're not going to be saved by educational level. We're not going to be saved because we were a who's who on earth. We will be saved only and solely when God sees the blood. Period. So this first batch of people had believed God had slain the lamb, had applied the blood, and the death angel passed over. But then the supposedly saved basically hitched a ride with the Israelites as they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. They saw that God had delivered them, and they said, Man, I don't know where they're going, but I want to go with them. This place is terrible. It's been plague after plague. I'm getting out of here. But they were not people of faith who mingled with those who had truly been saved. They were a mixed multitude. They did not have faith in the blood, faith in the God of Moses. They were hitchhikers. They were squatters on God's people's land. It was supposedly, the the, uh, supposedly saved were the mixed multitude that murmured and complained. They were the ones who were saying, oh, you know, God shouldn't have brought, why'd you bring us here, Moses, to die? Why'd you do this to us, Moses. Would to God we'd stayed in Egypt. That was the mixed multitude. That was those who didn't know the Lord at all. They brought negative reports. They sowed unbelief among the people. And ultimately they perished in the barren wilderness desert, having pulled the entire first generation of Israelites down with them. Remember when the spies went over? They came back, brought an evil report, and the whole first generation wailed and and gave up in unbelief and god said very well here you will die you will not cross over well i believe some of those voices that dragged them down into unbelief was the mixed multitude that had never put their faith in the blood now here's the application for you and me this is why jude shared it there's a reason we as believers are told to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers listen if you're single and you're looking for a spouse and you're really wanting to get married and you find somebody that you just fall in love with you find you listen you better interview them before you fall in love and you better say i want to know do you believe in jesus christ as the only begotten son have you been born again and were you going to church before you knew me and then go interview their friends when they don't know it because listen people who are righteous don't care if you investigate them It's really true. They don't care. Righteousness will bear scrutiny with a smile, but somebody's got something to hide. will get mad at you for wanting to find out where they're really coming from. As the song says, my mama told me you better shop around. You better ask some questions because whatever you end up with is going to be the rest of your life, dear. Oh, but I'll just change him. I love him. And I just know I love him so much. You know, listen, if he's not walking with God when you're dating, he sure is not going to walk with God once he's got you to say, I do. What you see when you're dating is going to be magnified after you're married. I, I didn't mean to go this direction. Somebody in here, I'm just telling you the way. You better be very wise. When you get a good friend, you begin to run around with all the time. I wouldn't spend a lot of time with anybody that did not sharpen my faith, that did not encourage me in God. I'm telling you, we don't have time to be dragged down by other people's unbelief. There is a devil to defeat, and there is a lost world to win. So be very, very wise, because this mixed multitude dragged them down. Now, let's move on. Now, this time, we're going to look at the next two illustrations, starting with... The question of satanic invasion in the primeval age. Second Peter dealt with this. You're going to recognize some of this, but it doesn't hurt to go over it again because Jude went over it again. Second Peter dealt with it, and Jude now deals with it. This is heavy stuff, but let's look at what the Bible says. Verse 6 of Jude. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains, Under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Powerful stuff here. Watch. He's talking about angels that fell, angels that did not keep their first abode, angels that are right now chained up under darkness and they're awaiting the judgment of the great white throne. They're not gallivanting around like demon spirits are. These angels aren't free to roam. These angels are not possessing people or tempting people. or it, These angels are different. They have been locked away in chains in a dark place awaiting judgment. Keep this in mind. The Apostle Peter wrote of the very same thing. Look what he said. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, I'm going to tell you what hell means in a minute, putting them, here it is, in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Same thing. God's repeating himself in Jude. When God says something twice, when he says it once, you ought to do it. When he says it twice, you need to pay real attention and notice that these two men did not confer. By the Holy Ghost, they both wrote the same thing about these angels. Both Peter and Jude mention angels that are right now being held in chains of darkness. Awaiting the judgment day. Well, who are they? And what did they do? They're not roaming the earth like other demon spirits. First, both Peter and Jude put their fall in the context of the sin of Sodom. Now you've got to follow this closely. What why did God judge these angels this way? Peter and Jude both put their sin in the context of the sin that happened. In Sodom, which was the sin of going after strange flesh or into sexual activity, God has not sanctioned. That's what it's saying. Let's read Jude 7. As Sodom, and notice, continuing from verse 6. He's talking about those angels. Then in verse 7, he says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after, there's that word, strange flesh, that which God has not sanctioned. And they are set forth as an example. Now let's go on. Many solid Bible scholars believe that this particular group of fallen angels lusted after human women. Now, in pursuit of this unnatural desire, they violated the order of their being, and in consummating their craving, they brought down upon their heads the wrath of God. Let's just back up, because I can see your thinking caps on big time. So let's just back up a little bit. If God did not spare angels, 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says, when they sinned but sent them to hell putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And then backing up one more time, Jude says in verse 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, that is their place of authority, what God had placed them in the universe to do, the function he gave them, their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved an everlasting chains. Now that's verse 6. Waiting for the judgment of the great day. But now let's move ahead. And he just continues in verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities. Now now he's putting it in context. The cities around them in a similar manner. In a similar manner to these. The angels. Gave themselves over to sexual immorality. And gone after strange flesh. And they're set forth as an example. Now this is powerful and very deep stuff. Jude covers it. And so therefore we will do our best with it. Let's just look at this for a minute. Um, Peter points to the judgment that overtook these angels who fell not once but twice. They fell in the fall with Satan. They fell also in this unusual manner. He places this time of prof- uh, profound corruption during the time of Noah and the judgment of the flood. Second Peter 2 verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, what we have called over and over again the antediluvian world, those that were there prior to the flood, who Noah preached to, and warned them of judgment to come and they did not listen if he did not spare that ancient antediluvian world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah a preacher of righteousness and seven others now peter is simply there locking us into the time frame when these angels fell this way they were in the antediluvian time period the time before the flood The angels that involved themselves in this unimaginable corruption, Peter says, were thrust down to hell. Now, what does that mean? Hell, in this verse, comes from the word Tartarus, which is a Greek name for the underworld, especially the abode of the damned. But Tartarus is not the lake of fire. Now, hold that thought and look at me for a minute. Listen to this. Nothing is in the lake of fire yet. The lake of fire is there, but not one thing occupies it yet. The first, the first ones to, to bust open the lake of fire will be the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we see that in the end of the book of Revelations. At the great white throne judgment, anybody whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. But right now, nothing is in the lake of fire. Well, then where do they go? Well, Tartarus is not the lake of fire, though that will be these angels' final destination and those who do not accept Christ. Until the day they are delivered over the lake of fire, these wretched beings are currently in detention in Tartarus, held by chains of darkness. That's what the Word of God says. You may not have ever heard this. That's because nobody ever taught it to you. It's right there clearly in the Word of God. Okay? Everybody say tartar sauce. That's how I remember Tartarus. Every time I read that I think, "Eh, I'm sorry, but I digress. Uh, So where are they? They are in hell, but if you look in the Greek language this was written in, it's Tartarus, not Gehenna. Gehenna is the lake of fire. Tartarus is the equivalent of a detention center or a a place of detention in the spiritual arena where spirit beings are held awaiting the judgment. Moses describes their invasion of the human race in Genesis 6, 1 through 2. He says, quote, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, That the sons of God, if you've got a pen and a Bible with you, underline sons of God, because it matters here what that means. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives from themselves of all whom they chose. Now some argue that the phrase, the sons of God, is pointing to the godly line of Seth, and that these sons of God were actually Sethites. Aside from Adam, though, here's a problem with that. Aside from Adam being called a son of God in Luke 3.38, and born-again believers being called sons of God in several places in the New Testament, angels are called sons of God in every other place where the expression is used in the Old Testament. And I gave you a bunch of verses there. You can go look up yourself. When Job talks about angels, they're called sons of God. Many the psalmist, they, he calls angels sons of God. These sons of God, mentioned in Genesis, as fantastic as it may seem, appear to have been fallen angels taking on human form. Just as we find them doing when they appear to Abraham, do you remember that? Before Sodom's destruction, Abraham's in his tent. All of a sudden, these men show up, three men, or what he thought was men at first. Then he realized they weren't men, but they were angel beings. They sat in Abraham's tent. They ate a meal. They walked into Sodom, where the Sodomites clearly thought they were men. Remember that? Hello? Okay? Yet, in mere hours, these beings that the Sodomites thought were men brought fiery wrath upon the cities because they were angels that looked like men, ate like men, talked like men, but they were not men. Remember what Hebrews said? Be careful how you entertain strangers because in entertaining a stranger, you may be entertaining an, an angel unaware. Whee-oo, I can hear you all. And, and I know, I wish I had the Twilight, music, Twilight Zone music right there. This, this is in the Bible. And I don't you know. Don't go, you know, walking around wondering if somebody you've seen lately is an angel and all this stuff. I, uh, you know, this is extremely, exceedingly rare. And, and surely, um, angels would be bound now from what happened in the Antediluvian Age. But I'm showing you what happened. And that angels often appear in the Bible as men. They warned Lot, you better get out of here quickly. Quote, for we will destroy this place. Notice these men said we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to do what, everyone? Could mere men have brought fire down on that city? No. Who did it? Angels of judgment that appeared as men. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. And the result of these fallen angels' unnatural relations with women was the giants we read of in the Old Testament in Genesis 6, 4 to 5 as an example. Quote, There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, When the sons of God, there you go, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, And that's not a compliment. Renowned meaning renowned for evil, renowned for wickedness. This is the giants that so often plague the people of God in the Bible. Then the Bible goes on to say, Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil evil continually. Every thought man had before the flood came was an evil thought. Even children, teenagers, every thought in the heart of man was evil continually. That's the way it was before the flood. See the word wickedness? And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. Well, there's a powerful word. Wickedness in verse 5 means moral depravity. That's what wickedness is talking about. Moral depravity. This was a totally morally depraved culture that preceded the flood. Pornographic. It was a morally depraved culture. Now I'm going to ask you a question as we go on in this word tonight. We're about to get into Sodom and Gomorrah. and So let me ask you a question as we go through this. What about our culture now? Can you imagine, maybe you couldn't have 20 years ago, 30 years ago, can you imagine now the Western culture, if God doesn't intervene, getting to a place where the thoughts of people are only evil continually except for the bride of Christ? I mean, is our culture being corrupted in front of our eyes? You better believe it. And so these people, these antediluvians, were morally depraved. The giants that Moses mentions are what are known as the Nephilim, meaning Fallen ones, the offspring of the unions between these angelic creatures and women. They were people of giant size, strength, in- inventiveness, and iniquity. They were wicked. They were evil. They were always set against God and God's will. Their destruction was necessary for the very continuation of the human race. The flood had to come. The giants were also known as Anakim in Numbers 13 and Rephaim in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and um, several places there that I've written down for you. Now, here's the app. Why does this matter to you and me? Here's Jude's message and Peter's message. If God did not hesitate to judge fallen angels, condemning them to the blackness of darkness forever, he will judge apostates and teachers of heresy and those who do wickedness, who lead others into error and into the possible damnation of their souls. If God didn't hold back from them, then don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, whoever the man is, he will also reap. The fear of God is a good thing. It will keep you out of trouble. Amen? Amen? Now, here's the third illustration Jude uses in, uh, from the patriarchal age. And here we're going into Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude writes, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after, there's that phrase again, strange flesh, that which God has not sanctioned, are set forth as an example. Now, what's an example? It's a show-and-tell. An example is, you remember show-and-tell in school? Remember, and, and, and God will, from time to time in history, do a show-and-tell, and He will let you know what He thinks about a certain thing. And He wants that to stand as an example, all right? So the Bible is filled with show-and-tell examples of how God views something, how He feels about something, uh, or what the fate of something is if it's not repented of. So Sodom and Gomorrah are intended to be what, everybody? Let's try to at the count of three: one, two, three. An example. So we're supposed to look at it and go, oh, and connect the dots and go, if that happened to them, then God apparently didn't like it. So I will avoid that. Right? Okay. Now notice that Second Peter and Jude are almost identical in their use of three illustrations to sound the alarm concerning coming judgment. Peter discusses, one, fallen angels, two, the ancient world of Noah's day, and three, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude points to the Israelites in the wilderness, one, Two, the fallen angels in Noah's day. And three, Sodom and Gomorrah. They only differ on one of the three illustrations. They repeat the fallen angels and they repeat the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So that must matter to God, right? Now as to Sodom and Gomorrah, God himself, God himself, both condemned and judged the Twin Cities by burning them to ashes. God did it. Their lifestyle is deemed ungodly by Peter, and Jude calls it sexual immorality or fornication. Now, if I was to teach what I'm teaching right now on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MS, LSD, or any of the other ones, I'm sorry, MSNBC, I'm sorry. Some of my disgust with the networks every once in a while leaks in, right? now if if I taught this there, I wouldn't get through it they would They would grab me by the neck they would they would throw me out of there so fast, calling me bigoted, calling me judgmental, calling me a right wing extremist coot nut, calling me backward, calling me ignorant, calling me all kinds of names, judgmental, all kinds of names that's all right because i've learned. We perform for an audience of one. We do. And my audience ain't them. Okay? It is Him. And His Word. I'm a teacher of His Word. This is not Jeff-isms. This is not Jeff theology. I'm teaching you the Word. I'm showing you the Word. I'm just reading it to you. So what does God say about this? Well, Peter calls their lifestyle ungodly. Jude calls it fornication. Now, fornication, what's that? Fornication. It comes from the Greek word pornuo. What do you think we get from that one? Pornography. Pornuo. Now, it means utterly unchaste. But here's what a lot of people don't understand that pornuo or fornication really is an umbrella word that covers all sexual sin, not just sex between. Two unmarried people. Um, it covers uh, the, the Complete Word Study Dictionary, says this quote, used generally to refer to any sexual sin. So it includes any form of illicit sexual intercourse, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, you name it. And that's a quote from the Complete Word Study Dictionary. That's what the word means. It's an umbrella word. Any sexual sin can be called fornication. In Romans 1, the Holy Spirit expands and focuses specifically on homosexuality and lesbianism because the writer, Paul, is hearkening back to events like Sodom and Gomorrah and how they got where they got. Now look what he says in Romans 1. Wherefore, God also gave them up. That's people who denied God. Gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. Notice, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. You can honor or you can dishonor your body. Your body's not evil. Can I tell you your body's not evil? And neither is flesh evil. It's what you do with it that becomes evil or good. God made your body and said it is good. And curves just tries to fix it now that we're fallen. But God created the body and said, It is good. So there's nothing sinful or evil or wrong with the body. But you can dishonor it and you can defile it. And that is by sexual sin. Now he goes on, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and they worship and serve the creature or the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, what cause? Because they they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served what He created rather than the Creator. So for this cause God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, what God didn't intend in the creation. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another Men with men, working that which is unseemly. Is Paul not looking back to times and places like Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. And he says, men with men is unseemly. He goes on. Now look at the adjectives we just read. The adjectives that were used by the Holy Spirit who moved on Paul to write. Unclean, lustful, dishonoring. A lie, vile, unseemly, unnatural. These are God's descriptions of the homosexual lifestyle. Right there. I'm just reading the Bible. Scripture indicates that like all other sexual sins, homosexuality is a choice. Let me tell you, it's a choice. Somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way decisions are made and a choice is made. I don't claim to fully understand how someone can have such a strong draw to the same sex. I don't, I, don't, I, I don't claim to have all the psychological answers for that. I have to go to the Word of God. And the Word of God is very clear that it says three times that those that got involved in that had made an exchange They had made an exchange. Now, exchange is a verb. Look what it says they did. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That was the first one. Second, they exchanged the glory of God for something else. That was the second exchange. The third exchange, they exchanged the natural for the unnatural. That's what the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write. The word exchange is a verb implying a choice was made. Otherwise, God would be utterly unfair in judging it, wouldn't He? How can God judge if you were born to be that way? How could God justifiably judge that? He can't make you a certain way and then say, don't act that way. That makes God a torture master. And that's not what God is. So God would be unfair to judge it, but He did judge it in Sodom and Gomorrah jude peter and paul all insinuate that this kind of degenerate behavior is the hallmark of apostasy now people can say what they want and i'll get letters on this and i'll get i I will but here's the deal i guarantee you when a society gives into this condones it puts a stamp of approval on it and there's no move of god to turn it around that society's doomed God will ultimately give the practitioners of this lifestyle over to their lusts. Three times they made an exchange, and look what happened in Romans. Three times it says they made an exchange, and three times we're told God gave them up. That means he tried and tried and and, and prodded and, and convicted and wooed and spoke, and they were re- and he was resisted. So what does God finally do? He gave them up. Look, three times God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them over. Three exchanges, three giving ups. The same word, gave up, is used to describe the Lord Jesus giving himself up to death. It's also used of Judas' betraying Christ, giving him over to his enemies. The same word is used to describe the Lord Jesus giving himself up to death. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't change it. It's used of committing someone to prison. And the same word is used of the fallen angels being delivered into chains of darkness. Turned over, turned over, given up, given up. There comes a time in God's dealings with a person or a nation that if he's resisted enough, pushed back enough, denied enough, God will say, all right, go for it. And he'll give you up. And boy, is that a dark day in anyone's life or the life of any nation. I want to tell you, my deep concern is that America is this close to being given up. God said, go on. You want to do it? You're breaking every law, every moral law, changing laws, persecuting people who say that it's wrong, persecuting people who stand for righteousness, persecuting people who are moral, Calling good, bad, bad, good, right, wrong, wrong, right, light, dark, dark, light. If you keep doing that, three exchanges, three giving ups. The scriptures suggest that one must break through an inner barrier of God-given restraint to engage in this kind of sexual activity. Something inside of you tells you it's not natural, but you cross it. And when you defy the laws of nature, you're in danger of searing your conscience, where you can honestly look at somebody and say, oh, no, no, this is fine. Fine with God, fine with everybody, because your conscience has been seared. But that's not the way that God created us to be. Now, Jude takes us back, as did Peter, to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that we might see that apostasy and sodomy are twin horrors. Check out the rest of history. I did. I did. Here's what I found. God habitually judges the society that has abandoned morality and decency to the point of condoning it, where you condone it and you persecute and judge and condemn people who will not condone it with you, as they did Lot. In the 1930s, British anthropologist J.D. Unwin studied 86 cultures that stretched across 5,000 years. He found without exception, when they restricted sex to marriage, they thrived. Strong families headed by faithful spouses made for bold, prosperous societies. But not one culture survived more than three generations after turning sexually permissive. Now that's just the study of an anthropologist. Noted Harvard sociologist Peterum, I assume, Sorokin found no culture surviving once it ceased to support marriage and monogamy. None. Not one. What's happening in America right now? An incredible attack against the institution of marriage. Incredible attack against what God created in Eden and established in Genesis all throughout the Word of God. Now, not one culture survived once it ceased to support marriage, and monogamy. This is part of defending the faith. God wants delivered to the saints. Not one. So if you think that our society is becoming more and more illuminated, where we're putting our stamp of approval on these things and growing in love because we're not condemning anybody, let everybody do what they want to do, that is stupidity. It is not wise. It's just not. It is, you're not growing in illumination. You're you're going into more and more darkness. In Sodom, the unnatural became the natural, the rule rather than the exception. Good became bad, bad became good. The righteous, like Lot, were persecuted and resented. The overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example. The twin overthrows of both the pornographic lifestyle of the antediluvians and the homosexual lifestyle of the men of Sodom stand side by side in Scripture as show and tell. How does this relate to us today? The Lord Jesus foretold that one mark of the end times would be that society once again would become as pornographic as it was in the days of Noah And as perverted as it was in the days of Lot. Jesus said this. Let's just read it and then we're going to close. Look what Jesus said. As it was in the days of Noah. Stop right there. So Jesus verified the ark, the flood, the animals that went into the ark. The whole account of Genesis, Noah and the ark. Jesus verified and validated it. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah. That's the way it's going to be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate. They drank they married wives they were given in marriage until the day that noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all well pastor jeff they weren't doing anything wrong oh watch this now noah had been telling them judgment is coming what was their response totally ignored him there was no conviction no repentance they ate they drank they lived life the way they wanted to they had a they had 10 years they had they had They could not hear the warnings of the Word of God. They went on with life as usual. And what Jesus' point is, they were totally shocked when judgment fell. Then he said, likewise, it was also in the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. What were they doing? They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold. Business as usual. Oh, yeah, that Lot guy, he's a nut. And that uncle of his, Abraham, he's a fool. Don't worry about them. And they went on with life as usual and ignored the warnings of God. And they were stunned if they had a moment when judgment fell. He says, They planted, they built, but on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained from heaven, fire and brimstone, and destroyed them all. And they were totally taken. Taken by surprise, because they had not listened. Even so, Jesus said, will it be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed? Everybody will be going on with life as usual. Oh, yeah, yeah, all those, those, the church, the right wing, the extremists, those nutcases, those Bible thumpers, uh, all those, you know, the Bible. No, 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 come on. Just life as usual, marrying, giving in marriage, working, making money, storing up the 401K, getting the gold watch when you retire, and then it's going to happen just the same way. Bam! judgment will fall suddenly and the world will not have expected it at all can we stand together in the last few decades we've seen a massive erosion of all moral standards in our society which was once known as a christian society founded on the judeo-christian ethic but the spread of secular humanism atheism liberalism political correctness has paved the way for a massive redefinition of moral norms. We are personal witnesses, are we not? To the rapid defining of deviancy down. Where wrong is now right. And right is labeled bigotry, racist, and unloving. We blink at things now that only decades ago would have made the least of us blush with shame. No doubt this is the deadly philosophy that had gripped Sodom. How should the church respond? Jude tells us in verse 20. Let's read this together. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, bring you to eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. That's what Jude says. Next week, the Bible's Three Stooges. I can't wait. But let's go to the Lord. We, we need to see a move of God so bad in America. So many people are in peril. Father, right now, we just pray that this message will be received in the compassion of Christ and the truth of God. And people that are trapped in this will hear the word of the Lord and be delivered laying hold of the promises of God. And, Lord, we we see America and Europe, the West, in such rapid decline. And we pray that, Lord, you will graciously send a mighty move of God again. That, Lord, revival will move from coast to coast in every direction. And, Lord, let us see a great and unprecedented harvest before the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your help. Thank you for your blessing. In Jesus' name, let's sing one song right before we go. Jesus, mercy.